I'm Charles Looney. I've preached here a couple times before. Uh, Brian uh, asked me to uh, present this morning, and in, in fact, it, we're, we're doing a series entitled uh, Coming Home, I think is the name of the series, and the, the premise of it, what we're doing is we're going through the minor prophets, and it's been said a couple times, uh, but I'll go ahead and say it again, it's worth saying, these are minor prophets, only because the books are really short, not because they're less important, and in fact, Jonah was the... The, uh, the, the book that I'm going to be preaching on this morning is actually only four chapters. It's like a 10-minute read. It's really, it's really pretty short. Um, but preaching on an entire book does present some challenges, uh, as opposed to just going through a passage, kind of verse by verse, where you can kind of pick it apart and see what it's saying and make a case. A, a whole book, it's interesting because there's actually, you know, there's several themes when you go throughout a whole book, and so it's kind of hard to address all of them. But I'm going to try to address three themes that, that come out of uh, the book of Jonah. And those themes are God uses his people to make himself known. God, that's his mission. God's mission will be accomplished through and sometimes in, in spite of his people. And when we engage with God on his mission, he engages with us in our heart. So let's pray, and then we're going to start looking into these. We'll take them just one by one. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and worship you, uh, to praise you, to turn our hearts to you and focus on you and meditate uh, on your greatness. Lord, we thank you that you have recorded uh, this story and you've protected it. Uh, through uh, all these generations, and you brought it to us here this morning so that we can open it up and look at it and examine what uh, is being said uh, to the original audience as well as to us. And we ask, Lord, uh, that you would illumine our minds and help us to understand, Lord, uh, what we need to take away from this and how this should challenge us and comfort us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Growing up in the church, you know, I read the stories, heard the stories of the Old Testament, and uh, by and large, I guess looking back, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, I kind of always thought that in the Old Testament, God was really only concerned about Israel. Like, he wasn't really care, he didn't really care about peoples beyond that. It was just, it was all about the people of God and Israel. But, it turns out, that is not the case. God actually cares very much about the entire world. And in fact, uh, God's that all that ink that spilled in the Old Testament about the promised land, it was actually uh, an, uh, an evangelical kind of missional um, approach to making himself known through his people. There's a reason why God was giving his people that land. And so, for example, I think we have a map. We have a map of just the, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, so, if you, if you think about the promised land, it's that kind of darker shaded area. Uh, God actually, when he, when he picked this part of the world at the time, you had, you know, the Assyrians were up north, and that was a big economic power. And then you had the Egyptians to the south, which was another big economic power. And then on either side of the promised land, you had the, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, 
uh, and, and sailing technology at the time didn't really allow you to go straight across, or at least that was a treacherous journey. Um, and so typically people would kind of leapfrog down that, the coast of uh, that land in order to get to Egypt or vice versa. And then, of course, you didn't want to go through the desert for obvious reasons, right? And so what happened was that promised land became a thoroughfare for commerce, so people in Egypt and beyond Egypt would come up through that land and, and to make their way to Assyria to buy goods and, and other things. And vice versa, people from Assyria and above would go down uh, through the promised land. Right? And so by, by, by setting it up like that, what God was doing was, he was set, well, here, I'll put it into his words. If we go to Deuteronomy, if you go to Deuteronomy, now Deuteronomy is... Um, Deuteronomy is a series of speeches that Moses is giving, kind of pep talks, uh, before the people go into the promised land. And he's trying to get them geared up to go into the promised land. And this is what he says in in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that the statutes and rules are so righteous as all the law that I have set before you today? See, Moses is saying, if you go in and you keep God's covenant, You'll be a witness to all of the peoples around you of how great God is. See, the idea was it was this concept that as these merchants and everybody's coming through uh, the promised land, they were supposed to rub elbows with all of these foreigners. It was an incredibly diverse crowd that would have been making their way through the promised land. And the idea is as they as they kept God's laws and commands, people would take notice and they would say, this is kind of cool. This is neat. What God do you all worship? And they would take those concepts with them back to their lands. And so this was actually an evangelical kind of stronghold. And and whoever kind of controlled this land had a disproportionate cultural influence on the developed world at the time. It would have been like, you know, controlling, you know, New York for print media and, and, you know, Memphis for music and, and Hollywood for movies. Whoever controls those areas have a disproportionate amount of influence on the English-speaking world. And that's, that's what God had done. That's why God set it up like this. He very much cared about the rest of the world. In fact, in Exodus, the Exodus community, right, God says specifically, he says, he says to the Israelites, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the idea that God is getting across here, and of course, and, and, and Moses in Deuteronomy, is that God was going to use his people to be a kingdom of priests to represent him to the nations. All the earth is mine, he says, but I'm going to use you to get that message out. So God is actually very interested in making himself known through his people to the entire world. Now, of course, when you get to the New Testament, 
um, the the uh, focus, you know, or the the strategy might have changed a little bit, but it's still the same mission. So where in the Old Testament it was come and see, in the New Testament it becomes go and make, as in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. And so that nation-state nexus kind of goes away, but, but God is now, now sending his people out into all the world to go out and make disciples. Same mission, different strategy. In fact, you can actually see it. Now, that's kind of under the underlying history and, and stuff that's happening behind the scenes in Jonah. But you can actually see, even in Jonah, the book of Jonah itself, that God is very much interested in the foreign nations because he sends Jonah to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, not in the promised land. Jonah essentially is a foreign missionary. God is very much concerned with making himself known through his people. Now, it was a shift and everything, and so, but I need to say, since it was the same mission in the Old Testament, and it's the same mission now, but just with different uh, strategies, that has some implications for us. Uh, it means that God wants to use us all of us, everyone who puts their trust and hope and faith in the Lord, to make him known. That means we actually have a responsibility to make God known. Now, I know that, that's, that might be very burdensome for a lot of people, and what I don't want people to do is, is take that then and, and put in their mind this, this model of what it looks like, you know, and start thinking of Billy Graham or something like that or a street preacher, like, this is what I've got to do. Well, not necessarily. There's a lot of ways to serve the Lord. There's a lot of ways to make God known. Uh, just uh, numerous ways. In fact, I mean, the, the Israelites in the promised land were supposed to make God known just by everyday com- uh, conversation and interaction with people. It, in fact, it's telling that the sailors didn't recognize a Hebrew when they saw one. It means the Israelites might have been failing in their mission. But nonetheless, you know, we are called to make God known. So we're called to make God known, but in, in a number of ways, and that needs to be prayerfully thought out. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to be able to speak the truth when the time comes. In fact, you know, I'll tell you a quick story of a friend of mine in high school. Now, by the way, you know, I'm no great evangelist. Uh, I've never seen crowds of people come to faith or anything like that. I mean, even Jesus says, you know, when you get into the New Testament, um, you know, one plants and another reaps. Paul says something very similar. There's a lot of different ways in which we make God known. Um, So, you know, I I tell you God wants to use us to make him known, but I don't want anybody to walk away with a heavy burden because there's a variety of ways in which that happens. So a friend of mine in high school I had many conversations with, um, you know, was concerned, he was thinking about God, but he never really made any kind of a commitment. Um, and, and then fast forward a few years later, after college, actually, I was in town, happened to be in town for something, and uh, he asked for my help with some landscaping project that we were doing, or that he was doing at his house, and, and so I borrowed <laughs> some equipment from my brother's landscaping uh, business, and there we are in this really old, beat-up dump truck without mufflers and no air conditioner, going down the highway at 45 miles an hour because that's as fast as it could go in Columbia, South Carolina heat, like middle of July. 
So not ideal conversa- you know, conversation uh, time. But I guess it was on his heart, and, and God had put it on his heart. And he starts asking questions about God again, you know, and, and specifically, what would it look like for me to follow God? And over the roar of the engines and the hum of the tires uh, and, and every other impediment, I tried to do my best to explain what I could, you know, and I said, is that something you're interested in? And he said, well, I don't know about, not, maybe not right yet. I need to talk to my wife about it. We need to talk. Said, okay, it's fine. So he goes on, and um, a few months later, he calls me back, and he tells me how they had gone to church one day, and they started talking to the pastor afterwards, and he and his family came to faith. I wasn't the reaper. I might have been planting seeds for years and not even really known it. But at the end of the day, just like Jonah on the boat, sometimes making God known just means speaking the truth with the people who are around you, who are ready and willing to ask. So God has a mission to make himself known and specifically to do it through his people. But his people don't always get it right, right? I mean, I've said the wrong thing a ton of times. I have presented the gospel in really poor ways. I've messed up, right? We all have. Jonah is a great case study in what not to do in many ways. And yet, look at how effective he was. All right, the story starts with Jonah somewhere in the northern part of the promised land. God tells him to go to Nineveh. He runs south because he runs down to Joppa. Do we have that map? He runs down to Joppa. I think it's the other one. Hey, so he, hit, he hits a job, which is a seaport down on the southern part, and he, hit, he gets on a boat heading to Tarshish, which is a cool name, probably for our next dog. All right, so he gets, and he's going to Tarshish, and, and he's, he's in the boat, and he's asleep in the, uh, you know, in the hole or whatever, and they wake him up, and they, you know, cast lots to try to figure out, like, on whose account this is, uh, this is and you've got to imagine the scene. You've got to imagine... Jonah's sitting there. He knows good and well why this storm has come up, right? Because God calls this tempest. He knows good and well, but he's just, he's just biting his tongue. And through this series of uh, process of elimination, I guess, through casting lots, it they, they falls on him. What, what's going on? And so he tells him, well, I'm a Hebrew. Um, uh, well, yeah. yeah he says, so he says, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew, um, you know, and I, I fear the Lord, uh, God who made uh, the heaven, or uh, God of the heaven who made the dry sea, uh, dry the land and the sea, right? And so they had to kind of pull this out from him, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize Hebrews because, of course, I think you know Israel was probably failing in their mission. So evidence of that is the fact that that God had to send somebody to Nineveh in the first place. But uh, secondly, they didn't know who a Hebrew was. So he goes, and so he finally says, "Who you know what what he is and what he's doing." And then, you know, the result of that is they say, well, okay, what do we do? How do we, how do we stop this? This will throw me overboard. Now, the, the mariners, the sailors are actually pretty upright guys, and they're like, we don't want to do that because that's going to kill you, and we don't want your blood on our hands. So finally, they work it out with God, say, God, don't hold this against us, but we're going to do it. So they throw him overboard, and immediately 
the wind and the waves, they stop. And right at that moment, you know, the text tells us, right, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Jonah wasn't looking to represent God. In fact, he was running away from God's call to represent him. And yet, nonetheless, God still used him because what you see in that moment is actually a conversion. These men, after having that encounter, they feared the Lord and they, they made sacrifices and vows. They came to faith, despite Jonah. Well, then he goes, and eventually he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, Look at how successful he was at Nineveh. Nineveh is a three-day journey. It's 120,000 uh, people. He gets one day into it, going through it, saying, hey, in, in 40 days, God's going to destroy your city. And then the text tells us that the people believed the Lord. And then they said, let everyone turn from his evil ways, from the violence that is in, in his hands, who knows, maybe the Lord will turn and relent and turn uh, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And, and we're going to find out here in a minute when we get to chapter 4, Jonah specifically did not want this. And yet it happened anyway. Because at the end of the day, God is going to make his mission successful with us and sometimes in spite of us. Sometimes, you know, just, well, you got so I, I say that because the first part of this puts a burden on you and says, wait a minute, okay, so I really have to represent God and I haven't been doing a great job. Yes, we do. In some form or fashion, we all have to step up and actually try to represent God. But on the other hand, don't put a heavy burden on yourself because at the end of the day, we can trust in the Lord to make his, his mission successful. And that mission is going to look different in different situations. We don't need to put this uh, kind of cookie-cutter approach on it and think we have to be Billy Graham. But we do have to be willing to speak the truth when God calls us to speak the truth. Now, I was going through all of this the other night with, um, with my family, and, and my son you know, he says, well, wait a minute. Okay, so God wants to use people, but people are often kind of bad and don't do a good job. So why does he use them? It's a good question. I mean, yes, God is fully capable of striking a straight blow with a crooked stick, and we're all crooked sticks. But why? Why would he even do that in the first place? Wouldn't it be easier for him to just write it in the sky or just have some big booming voice? Worship me, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that he could do other than using us, flawed us. So why does he do that? Well, so here's the, the third theme in the book of Jonah, which is that when we engage with God in his mission, he engages with us in our heart. When you read through Jonah, more ink is spilled in the book of Jonah on the relationship between Jonah and God than anything else. And there's a whole series of, of disciplines that God enacts here Right? I mean, he sends the storm to try to turn Jonah around. Then he puts him, you know, he has this fish swallow him. And then after three days of being in the, in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally has a come-to-Jesus moment. 
right? And he finally relents, and he's like, oh my gosh, God, you are great, and you're mighty. I can't believe I'm not digested yet. Thank you for saving me. And so God then speaks to the fish, and the fish is spit out onto dry land. And now he kind of, now he relents, and God calls to him again and says, go, go to Nineveh. And so finally he does. He says, okay, I'm going to go to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh. But then, right, so, so you, you get this little change, and you think, oh, maybe there's hope for Jonah. Like if this is the first time you're reading this, you're thinking there's hope for Jonah. But then the people uh, of Nineveh repent. And Jonah, but Jonah, in the meantime, Jonah goes up onto this hill. And you imagine the scene, right? Jonah goes up onto this hill. He sets himself up. It's almost like he's sitting there with his popcorn thinking, I'm ready for this firestorm to come down on Nineveh. And it doesn't happen. It's, it's a little twisted when you think about it. The fact that he was so excited about the prospect of God you know, destroying Nineveh. But nonetheless, it doesn't happen. And so in verse 4, uh, in chapter 4, we read this. Verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this why I said, uh, is, is not this why, what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It seems a bit of an extreme response. But he gets it right. I mean, theologically, he knows God is, you know, abounding in grace and, and steadfast, all this stuff. He gets it right, but his heart is not in the right place. And there are reasons for that. I mean, we could go into the history behind uh, Assyria and, and Israel. But the, but the fact of the matter is, his heart's not in the right place. Now, if the book was simply about God making himself known, the story would have ended after chapter 3 when, when all of Nineveh came to faith. But he goes on. You see in chapter 4, you've got this, you know, he, he's, Jonah's over here with this bad attitude. And then God calls this plant to grow and give him shade. And then the next night, he has a worm come and destroy the plant. And then Nineveh, uh, Nineveh then Jonah uh, has another bad attitude moment. And he says, essentially, now, now the sun's beating down on me. Uh, it's better for me to die than to live. Again, that's a bit extreme, Jonah. You've you got some more sun. And what's God's response? God says to him at the end of chapter 4, and the Lord said, You pity the plant which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a single night and perished in a night. And you should, uh, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And it ends. That's how the book ends. And you're sitting there wondering, like, well, okay, what's Jonah's response? Did he change? You know, in many ways, there's some kind of uh, parallels, I think, with the, the, uh, uh, Jesus' story of the, um, the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns, and you've got this elder brother who God is interacting with him, or the father is interacting with the elder brother, saying, you know, I know you're upset right now that all this stuff is coming to your brother who's repented and come home, but... All you have, all I have is yours, like, be happy with me, right? And he's still over there pouting the elder brother, and that's kind of what Jonah's doing. He's still over there pouting the elder brother because all these wayward people have come to faith. 
but it leaves it there because God's work with Jonah is not done. You see, throughout this whole thing, God has called Jonah into the mission of making himself known. And Jonah has done a horrible job of it, but God is sovereign even in the midst of that, and he accomplishes his mission. And yet, throughout the whole process, God is constantly working on him and disciplining him and tweaking him because God is capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. He can both call us to witness to other people about who he is while at the same time working on our hearts because he's not done with us. And in fact, I would argue, and I think that the text shows us that that's actually part of his preferred method, is to engage us with his mission and then work on us in that process. You know, my kids were younger. Well, we still do it, I guess. But we would uh, have them come into the kitchen and help us make cookies, right? And um, now, we didn't need their help to make the cookies, okay? We can make cookies without the help of, you know, a five- and six-year-old. But we had them come in, right, and, and they would come in, and they, they wouldn't always listen to instructions, and they would make messes, and we'd have to clean them up, uh, you know, and, and clean up the mess that they'd make, and sometimes, you know, they'd touch something they weren't supposed to touch, and they'd get burned, and we'd have to comfort them, right? So it was kind of a hassle to bring them into the kitchen. It would have been a whole lot easier if we just pushed them out and said, I'm going to do it myself. But we still invite them in for a reason, because when we bring them in, we get to shape and mold them. We get to, we get to talk to them about what it means to listen to mommy and daddy and, and obey us, and we get to talk to them uh, you know, about you know, all these processes. They get to learn, and they get to come to have a, a better, closer relationship with us in the process, because they're depending on us in this process. And yeah, sometimes they get burned, and you know, we have to comfort them. You know, hopefully it's not too bad, but still, right, it happens. God, when it comes to making him known and his mission, he calls us into the kitchen because we're going to make a mess of it. <laughs> he doesn't need us, but we're going to make a mess of it anyway, and he's going to have to clean up behind us, and we're going to get burned in the process, and he's going to have to comfort us, but that's where he wants us because that's where he's really worked on us. That's where we really get to deepen our relationship with God because we're depending on him and this thing that is so foreign to us in many, many ways. God calls us to the mission of making him known. But he also gives us the structure and the support where we don't have to put that kind of of pressure on ourselves to feel like we we have to be successful. If it's going to be successful, he's going to do it. But in the meantime, we get to grow with the Lord, and that is an incredible gift. So let me just encourage you today to just sit down and think about and pray about the ways in which God might be calling you to engage in his mission to make him known. Maybe it's helping out with the Sunday school. Maybe it's helping out with the, the Sunday, you know, the summer camp that's going to be going on. Maybe it's just being a good store owner and having good principles and having people say, why is it that you pay your workers what you do, that you take care of them so well, that you take care of your customers so well? Why are you doing everything? And you would say, to the glory of God? Because I believe in a God that's just and good, and this is how he tells me to live my life. Maybe... Making God known, maybe it's within your grasp and you don't know it. Maybe it's outside your grasp and God gets to help you along the way. I mean, he will help you. But point is, 
engage with God and try to figure out the ways in which God is calling you to make him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time and the ability to open your word and read your scripture and think these thoughts after you. We ask, Lord, that as we're challenged today, um, that you would come alongside us and walk with us uh, in that challenge and help us to find our place in your kingdom, that place where uh, we are going to be faithful in making you known, speaking the truth in the times and places that you've appointed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.